Hello and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 58 where we go back, back to, to the, the past, past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday morning at chrisandreggie.podbean.com or pick us up from iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play and by t- tuning Gax in to the local transmitter. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is an issue this week picked by Bobby Bain, uh, I think, I guess we could say of the WSGF radio station. Uh, although she has a lot of creative ventures, she's also a uh, manicurist. So, if you're in the Detroit area, look her up. Uh, Mixer.com/slash/WeirdScienceDC is where you find that radio station. What book do we have this week, Chris? We are covering a one-shot called Akiko on the Planet Smoo. This came out December 1995. Features story and art by and created by Mark Crilly or Crilly. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are we saying that? Crilly, I would think. We'll Two say L's. Crilly. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this was published by Sirius Entertainment and came with a cover price of $3.95 USD. It's actually it's kind of high for 95 no? Well, it, it, is, a, it is independent. For, not but, for uh, an independent, yeah, but it would have been kind of high for like a, I think DC was at a buck 99. Yeah, probably either a buck 95 or a buck 99, yeah. Something like that. Anyway, we're going to do our author bio, uh, and luckily this time it's everybody. Everybody is one person, so we <laughs> only have one person to do a bio for. It's Mark Crilly, born May 21st, 1966, in Detroit, Michigan. Dad was a reverend, mother was a homemaker. Mark says he wrote from a very early age and began writing stories in second or third grade. He would also illustrate these stories and was known in his classes as the kid who could draw. Mark, who had two older brothers who, along with their parents, encouraged Mark to draw. He read Mad Magazine exclusively as a kid, and his brothers collected comics, mainly from the DC Comics pantheon. He graduated from the University of Detroit Jesuit High School in 1984. Then he would go to Kalamazoo College. While there, he met David Small, who's a fellow best known for illustrating various children's books, yeah. many of which are in my wife's library. That's she's right. Second grade teacher, so she's got a bunch of them. He won Calvacado. He's won a lot of awards, but uh, certainly it's not yeah, about David Small. Notable. This is about Mark. <laughs> not Grilly, not today. <laughs> uh, but we will say that David Small had a lot of influence on Mark's artistic point of view. Upon graduating from college in 1988, Krilly moved to Taiwan, then to Japan, and then. Back to Taiwan again in 1993. Uh, while he was overseas, he taught English. Uh, in 1992, he came up with the idea for Akiko on the planet Smoo, and uh, now we're going to read it. That's right. We're going to jump right into it, folks. Akiko on the planet Smoo came out in 1995. This is a black and white comic with a wraparound color cover, all of it drawn by Mark Crilly. Uh, in the scene, the wraparound is Akiko. And two other characters we haven't met yet, cruising happy in a, happily in a flying car through space. And there's a giant menacing creature made from a building, and it's uh, menacing them. Uh, on the back cover, there's some scary flying bug monsters and an oblong-shaped planet. All of this is stuff we're going to come to learn about as we read the story. So let's meet Akiko, who is sitting in a chair and addressing the reader directly. She says, My name's Akiko. This is a story of the adventure I had a few months ago when I went to the planet Smoo. I know it's kind of hard to believe, but it really did happen. I swear. It all started when I got this strange letter. So we see Akiko holding a letter that reads in very legible block lettering, Dear Akiko, we are coming to get you. Meet us outside your bedroom window tonight at 8 o'clock. Don't forget your toothbrush. 
which is not a letter any children out there should respond to, by the way. Never. Show no, that no. to your parents right away. Uh, Akiko thinks this is unlikely since she lives on the 17th floor of whatever building she lives in. But that night at 8 o'clock, there's a tapping at Akiko's window. Yes, it's a fella named Bop. He says, Akiko, we're here. Hurry up. We don't have much time. So then Akiko opens the window. Which, again, kids don't do. No. Akiko says, look, um, who are you guys? And the other guy who's Bip says, I'm Bip. And I'm Bop. And we're here to take you to the planet Smoo. The planet Smoo? That's pretty far from here, Akiko. In a different galaxy, in fact. We'll explain later. Right now, we've got to go. So Akiko says she can't go to another planet because she has a geography test tomorrow. Uh, Bop or Bip, since they look identical pretty much, says that they thought of that. And they brought a robot who looks just like Akiko to take her place while she's out of time. Yeah, definitely don't go with these guys. Uh, Akiko Akiko goes, will she do well on my geography test? Uh, So then they take off in Bip and Bop's flying space car, leaving the robot to study, which I think was a good touch. You know, Mm -hmm. it depends how well the robot studies. Uh, Akiko is concerned that she should have a helmet to fly in space. Yeah, the space car is a convertible after all. What are you talking about? There's plenty of air out here. Wow, wait till I tell my science teacher about this. Uh, Akiko eventually had to be committed to a mental institution. She kept <laughs> professing that there was air in space, and they would, they would, this doesn't end well in the, uh, in the long run. Uh, anyway, it only takes a couple of hours before they arrive at a planet that's sort of shaped like an M&M candy or like a deflated football, right, a little bit, or whatever yeah. it is, yeah. But either way, this is the planet Smoo. This is it, Akiko. What do you think? Very cool. First, we're taking you to see the king. He has some important business to discuss with you. The king? Is it okay if I'm wearing blue jeans? Well, not really. But he's making an exception in your case. Just make sure you laugh at all his jokes. Got it. Eventually, they come to the king's palace, which looks absolutely tremendous. The king greets them, and he sort of looks like a Panza de Leon. Right, basically. <laughs> he says, Pleasure to meet you, Akiko. I'm Frop Toppet, king of Smoo. I'm Akiko. I'm fourth grader. So, how are things in the Milky Way? I hear they're tearing down the Big Dipper and putting up a new constellation in its place. That's a joke, Akiko. Oh. (laughs) It's good to see you have a sense of humor, Akiko. You're going to need it where you're going. Now, it seems the king needs Akiko to travel to the other side of the planet and find his son, who is naturally the prince. Uh, Akiko asks the king why he selected her to find the prince. You know, after all, she is just a kid. Well, the king says she was highly recommended by a gentleman in the, in the Andromeda galaxy. He'd said Akiko was an expert on these matters. Akiko responds with, But I don't even know anyone in the Andromeda galaxy. Really? Hmm, maybe I misheard him. Probably. <laughs> now, the king has faith in Akiko, and besides, he's sending his best men along with her. We've got Poog from the planet, Toog, which uh, it's basically a floating jelly bean with big eyeballs. Essentially, yeah. There's Mr. Biba, who looks like a teddy bear with earmuffs, uh, but also anthropomorphic, standing and talking and such. Mm-hmm. He's, he's the real book smart one. Yep. But Spuckla Boach is a scruffy, dirty looking fellow with a peg leg. There's Gax, and this is Spuckler's robot. This is more or less a hubcap with a periscope. 
right? With bad, bad, right? Yes. Also, not really in great repair. Kind of a junky no. bot. Actually, you know what? The robot reminds me most of that one from Disney's The Black Hole. You ever see that movie? No, I haven't. Well, it's uh, there's a similarity there, but uh, anyway, hmm. it's it's a junk bot. The next morning, they yes. jam into a space car and take off. Kiko goes, "What if we can't find the prince, Mister Biba?" And Mister Biba says. I don't know. I suppose we'll all have to hide somewhere for a few years. Dirty Spuckler goes, Don't listen to him, Geeko. We'll find the prince. No problem. Right, Gax? Gax says, Well, actually... I said, right, Gax? If you say so, sir. Now they come to a door in the side of a large mountain. Mr. Bieber says there's a tunnel through the door they can take uh, to can take them to the other side of the planet. However, opening the door is the problem, says Bieber. As Spuckler asks if anyone tried turning the doorknob, Poog warns against it. His language can't be read in his word balloon, but it's like a, just a bunch of squiggles. But somehow, hmm. Mr. Bieber can understand it. So, whenever we say Poog said something. Mr. Bieber translated for him. He translates for yeah. us here. Uh, Spuckler goes, You guys are always making things more difficult than they really are. Any fool knows that when you want to open a door, all you have to do is turn the... And then Spuckler turns the doorknob with a kachook, and a trap door opens beneath everyone's feet, and they fall down a long, dark tunnel. Even Poog, who floats all the time anyway. Uh, now, as they fall, Spuckler and Mr. Bieber argue. I'm sorry to interrupt you two, but I believe we're approaching the end of the tunnel. You might want to grab onto something if you can. And everyone grabs onto some vines growing out of a hole protruding on the other side of the planet. Except for Poog, who doesn't have any arms or hands. Yeah, and, uh, now and Poog... in fact, didn't really even have to fall down the hole, but anyway. No, he, he, just, he just likes to follow. I guess. Uh, now, <laughs> he didn't want to be lonely. Uh, he points out that they're actually upside down, and everything else is right side up. And upon that realization, they all fall to the ground. Now, off to find the prince. Mr. Bieber produces a book from his valise. Yeah, he picks it up and says, According to this book, there's a hermit living here by the name of P.Q. Goiby. If we can find him, we can ask him if he's seen the prince. Excuse me, Mr. Bieber, but how do we know the prince is really on this side of Smoo? Because we couldn't find him on the other side of Smoo. Where else could he be? And as he says that, a huge shadow falls over our heroes. It's a giant four-legged dinosaur elk thing. Yes, yeah, Buckler identifies it as a long-horned fuba. Yes, <laughs> Buckler says, <laughs> I used... <laughs> I used to ride these things and around on the moons of Jaguzi. Come on, everybody, climb aboard and I'll take you for a ride. Everyone clambers up the giant beast's neck, very much like kind of Flintstone style, right? Kind yeah. Of the way they got out of the dinosaurs. Totally. And, uh, even Mr. Bieber, despite his trepidation. All I have to do is call out the command word and he'll take off running. Ready? He! M- must have said it wrong. Gee! Uh, that ain't it either. Free? And the Fuba takes off its full speed, almost ejecting Mr. Bieber from his back. Now Mr. Bieber holds on to the Fuba's tail. Spider, you lunatic! Stop this godforsaken beast at once! Spuckler, what's the word that makes them stop? There is no word that makes them stop. They just keep running until they get tired. That's what I love about these animals. 
And the Fuba continues galloping into the sunset. Eventually, it does stop and lies down. Sure. And they set up a camp against its side, against the massive sleeping beast. <laughs> Very convenient. It is. Uh, the following morning, they head out again, and they come up to a giant wall uh, with uh, some illegible writing on it. Of course, Mr. Bieber, the champion of illegible writing, can he can read it, yes. and he says, It says, property of P.Q. Goiby, go away! Well, we've come this far, we can't give up now. But how are we going to get past the wall? It must be 12 stories high. No problem. Gax and I have a little trick for getting through walls. We do. And so Spuckler grabs Gax and throws him through the wall with a crash. Did it work? On the other side of the wall is a junkyard for old rocket ships. PQ Goiby is working on one of them. He says, wait, don't tell me. You must be the kind people who just made a big hole in my wall. Well, we didn't have much choice, seeing as you forgot to make a door. I'm a hermit. What did you expect? Dinner invitations? We're sorry, Mr. Goiby. We didn't mean to disturb you. We just wanted to ask if you've seen this boy. Akiko hands P.Q. Goiby a picture of the prince. Who is he? He's King Froptoppet's son, the Prince of Smoo. Is that so? Well, I haven't seen him. Now get out of here! They prepare to leave this old cranky coot. But Poog warns that they're in terrible danger. Uh, Poog always says we're in danger. Doesn't he know how to say anything else? Wait! Your friend is right! Have a look up there in the sky! A swarm of dragon-winged monster bugs are descending upon the group. P.Q. Goiby hurries them to the spaceship that he was working on, although he's not even sure there's gas in the tank. <laughs> Please hurry, Mr. Goiby. They're almost here. Don't rush me, kid! And P.Q. Goiby pulls a lever, and the spaceship takes off over the wall with a broom. But the insect demon monster things are in pursuit. Can't you make this thing go any faster? I bought this old clunker from an old woman in Alpha Centauri. It was not intended for racing purposes. She just drove it to church every Sunday. Eh? <laughs> right. <laughs> now, uh, P.Q. Goiby flies the spaceship close to the face of a cliff and turns away at the last moment. All of the hellish bug creatures slam into the side of this cliff. Everyone is strewn about the cabin of the spacecraft. Hmm. That was easier than I thought it would be. Later, they rest atop a cliff. They're all really grateful to P.Q. Goiby, obviously. Yes, you saved our lives. How can we repay you? Well, for starters, you can carry on with your journey and leave me alone! Uh, P.Q. Goiby continues to berate them from the edge of the cliff as a winged bat monster flaps up behind him, and Akiko runs over. Mr. Goiby, watch out! The monster grabs P.Q. Goiby, and Akiko grabs onto him. They're flown high in the sky... But if you look at it, Chris, it doesn't really seem that bad, right? They seem, no. They seem kind of okay with it, so I sure. guess, guess it's fine. Uh, by nightfall, they come to a strange building on top of a mountain. Is that a castle, Mr. Goiby? It's no ordinary castle. It's the castle of Gengor. No one who has gotten there has ever returned alive. Now, the castle looks like three giant spires connected by bridges way near their tops. 
The center spire is taller and sort of looks familiar, huh? Like something we might have seen on the cover, I don't know. Perhaps. <laughs> Kiko goes, it sure is a spooky castle. Does anybody live here? Well, that depends on what you mean by the word live. Suddenly, the castle speaks in a booming voice. Who goes there? One of the castle spies turns out to be an arm, and it picks up a Kiko and PQ Goiby. You knew this was going to happen the minute you saw it. I mean, even without the cover, right? I mean, the second you saw this thing, you were like, oh, that's a, that's a, a humanoid. Yes. Uh, the castle of Gamgore says, Who are you? What brings you to the living castle of Gamgore? My, 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 my name is Akiko. I'm looking for the Prince of Smoo. Oh, you are, are you? Do you know what I'm looking for? What? I'm looking for something to eat. And PQ Goiby demands they be freed. The castle of Gamor uh, threatens to eat Goiby. Uh, and then Akiko tells him he shouldn't eat PQ Goiby, PQ Goiby because he is poisonous. Uh, and if the castle of Gamor eats him, he'll die. Castle of Gamgor says, Very well, I'll eat you instead. It didn't work out the way she wanted. No. Uh, now, the castle of Gamgore dangles Akiko above its jaws. And I like this because it doesn't look like there's, like, a balcony. It does. The way yeah, it, the it, looks, way it looks like the architecture actually is pretty well rendered here where it's like, it almost, I don't know, it grows a balcony in a way. You have to see it, but uh, it's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And uh, Akiko, in caption, goes, Just then, I remembered my toothbrush. I pulled it out of my back pocket and threw it down Gamgore's throat. Just as I hope my toothbrush got stuck somewhere down in Gamgore's throat, and he started to choke. In fact, he coughed so hard he began to fall apart. Maybe they should have been called the Castle of Gagmore, huh? Uh, uh, well. <laughs> and actually, I think I've called him that a few times. Yeah, I think I wrote it that way. In the ruins of a Castle of Gamgore, Akiko and PQ Goibi find each other. Just then, a familiar spaceship with Spuckler, Mr. Biba, and Poog flies over. It's the uh, convertible one that they initially used. Uh, King and Prince, Froptoppet, are also on the, sh- on the ship. Yeah, King Froptoppet says, Congratulations, Akiko! I knew you could do it! But I don't get it. How did you find the Prince? Why, he was never lost in the first place. This whole thing was a big test. To see if you are the right sort of girl to marry the prince. That's kind of rude, right? Yeah, really. Marry him? And Akiko faints. Which is probably the right thing to do. Yeah. Uh, now, that night at the Froptoppet Palace, they throw a huge party to celebrate the engagement. King Froptoppet says, A toast to Akiko Froptoppet, the future princess of Smoo. She's the bravest and most clever girl in the universe, and I should know, I tested almost all of them. And Froptoppet takes Akiko aside and whispers in her ear. Don't worry, Akiko. You don't have to marry the prince if you don't want to. I don't? I leave the matter entirely up to you. Of course, I hope you'll marry him. You see, he's crazy about you, Akiko. It would break his little heart if you turned him down. And Prince Froptoppet's mooning over Akiko with a dopey grin or that 
might be just the art style. I'm not sure. Everyone seems to either have a dopey grin or a shocked face in this thing, but uh, <laughs> I think he, I think he likes her. That's what, that's what we get. I think, that. yeah, he's smitten. Yeah. Um, and we wrap up the story with Akiko thinking. In the end, the king agreed to let me go back to Earth and think it over for a while. I told him I at least want to finish the sixth grade before I consider any marriage proposals. Life has been pretty quiet since then. I sort of miss Spuckler and Mr. Beba and Poog and Gax and everybody. They're a lot more interesting than most of the kids in the fourth grade. But I can't decide whether I'm going to marry the prince or not. I mean, spending the rest of my life on another planet could be difficult. But then again, if I stay here on Earth, I think the chances of me marrying a prince are pretty slim. Yep, especially since Prince passed away last year. Anyway, uh, the backup to this I didn't this even comic. know he was sick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the backup to this comic features, and there's a backup, folks. There's some souvenirs from Smoo. These are illustrated a little bit differently using ink wash, it looks to me. Yeah. Uh, they have kind of a more three-dimensional look. I don't want to say they look realistic. They just look different. That's all I would say. Kind of a... Com- Compared to the p- main art style, it looks I... hyper-realistic. <laughs> In a way, yeah. That's not, it's not bad work. It's just... Uh, no, no. It's, yeah. it's really nice. Uh, so there's a globe of Smoo from Mr. Biba in the shape, obviously, of the uh, deflated football. There's a box of chocolates from Spuckler, and she comments about them. Uh, they look weird, but taste like a mix between bubblegum and peanut butter, so uh, they're disgusting, basically, they is what I would say. They couldn't get the tuna fish and peanut butter? Good lord. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, PQ Goiby gave her a toy rocket ship that really flies, but Akiko doesn't use it much because it goes really fast and winds up breaking things. Uh, there's the toothbrush that felled the castle of Gamgor as well. There's a handful of indiscernible blurry pictures taken by Gex. Uh, Poog gave Akiko a scroll with a quotation by one of the great philosophers of the planet, Tug, but it's all written in, like we say, his scribbly, or it's scribbly garble. Yeah. garble. So Mr. Bieber translates it for Akiko, but she still doesn't get it. Uh, Spuckler thinks it reads, watch out. Now, King Froptop had gave her a snow globe with a model of his palace inside the globe. Uh, there's also a bolt and a spring, pieces of gags that fell off. <laughs> poor thing. Yeah, Kiko, really. uh, Why'd you take them? She... Why'd you give them back to the poor guy? <laughs> yeah, Akiko admits that she grabbed them all. No one was looking. <laughs> uh, now, Akiko is grateful to have these souvenirs, but wishes she could have kept the Akiko robot because she's got a math test next week. <laughs> That's it. And that concludes our issue. Uh, the first issue, the one shot, actually isn't even a Kiko number one. You know that, right? It's uh, yeah. it's called a Kiko of the Planet Smooth, and then a Kiko number one is, well, we'll actually Follows. We'll explain that right now in a way. Uh, so here's a little more on a Kiko. A Kiko, aside from the issue we've just read, 52 issues of a Kiko comic books have been produced. Each story arc has its own trade collection, except for the first one, which has three volumes. So. Uh, write that down, folks. We will be giving a test later. Uh, the first arc is The Menace of Alia Relapur. This is issues 1 through 18. It's collected in uh, trade volumes 1 through 3. That's that's the only one that's like that. Uh, there's The Story Tree. That's issues 19 to 25. That's collected in volume 4. Born Stone's Elixir, issues 26 to 31. And that's collected in volume number 5. Yeah, I have. Uh, I've got a. I've got the first trade collection, and it's actually got a sketch from Mark Crilly, and it's signed to uh, a guy named Bo, who uh, I just traded the book in. Well, um, look at that. 
<laughs> but I will be Bo for for the uh, duration. All right. Uh, we have Volume Six is Stranded in Komora, issues thirty two through thirty four. We have Moon Shopping, which collects issues thirty five through thirty eight. We have uh, the Battle of that's also in uh, Volume Six. We have the Battle of Boche's Keep, that's issues forty through forty seven. That's collected in Volume Seven. There's Flights of Fancy, which is a collection of backup and experimental stories from issues 1 through 46. This includes all of issue 39. Flights of Fancy, the high-flying expanded edition, expanded edition, is the same thing but more than what's in the original trade collection. And there's also a uh, three-page uh, color short story about a comic convention. The uh, the uh, key, what's it? I don't remember what it was called. I just read it today though. Yeah. But that came in a, a Wizard magazine issue number uh, 86, cover dated October 1998. And uh, the final issue of Akiko was published in March of 2002. But that was because he wanted to concentrate on this thing, which was beginning in mm-hmm. 2000. Random House Children's began publishing. Novel adaptations of Mark's Akiko series with spot art by Mark Crilly. Ten novels published to date, the last one in 2008, and probably the last one for good, but as I understand, it's still up in the air. Uh, Akiko on the Planet Smoo in 2000. Akiko in the Sprubly Islands in 2000. Akiko and the Great Wall of Trud in 2001. We have Akiko in the Castle of Aliarelapur in 2001. Uh, that ends adaptations from comic. Uh, we have Akiko in the Intergalactic Zoo in 2002, and that's uh, where they start original stories uh, in the novel format. We have Akiko in the Alpha Centauri 5000 in 2003. Akiko in the Journey to Tug in 2003. Akiko, the Training Master in 2005. Akiko, Pieces of Gex. I guess that comes back to bite her, huh? That she stole mm-hmm. that uh, spring in there. Uh, 2006. Akiko and the Missing Misp in 2008. Now, Akiko has been nominated in the Will Eisner Comic Industry Awards over a dozen times since 1995. And in 1998, Mark Crilly and Akiko were nominated for Best Serialized Story, Best Continuing Series, Best Title for Younger Readers, and Best Cover Artist. Four nominations. I mean, that's nothing to sneeze at, folks. Uh, Absolutely. That was quite a lot. And speaking of that fellow, let's wrap up his story, which uh, doesn't have a ton left to go, but we'll, we'll tell you what we know. In 1995, Mark returned to his home state in Michigan uh, from traveling in the Far East. Sirius continued to publish Akiko comics throughout the 1990s in single issue and collected editions, as discussed before. In 2004, Random House published Krilly's first new creation since Akiko, which was Billy Click, Creech Battler. The second book in the series, Billy Click, Rogmasher Rampage, hit stores in the fall of 2005. In 2007, Mark created the original English-language manga, Miki Falls. Four volumes, one for each season, published over eight months between 2007 and 2008. It's been optioned for development as a feature film, by Paramount and Brad Pitt's Plan B Productions Company. In 2010, Mark Mark began Brody's Ghost, a series of graphic novels published by Dark Horse. Book one was released in July 2010. Book two followed in January 2011. Book three in May 2012. Book four in April 2013. Book five in April 2014. And the final volume, book six, was released in April 2015. Wow. Uh, he did one a year. Bless him. There he you go. He sure did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, he also published uh, educational books, uh, Mastering Manga in 2008 and Mastering Manga 2 in 2013. They, those were published in 
has uh, a series on his deviant art and his YouTube uh, pages that teach illustrations, and I will include links to those in the show notes. Yep. Some uh, pretty amazing stuff there. Um, now, Mark has two daughters with his wife, Mickey, and uh, if, you might, if you haven't guessed it yet, she is the namesake of Mickey Falls. Yeah, look at that. So, uh, the hook for the show, folks. Well, uh, you know, this whole Akiko was inspired by manga, so we wanted to at least take a brief look at manga. However, it's going to be very brief, and we're, we're going to explain why when we get to the end and give some of our thoughts on the Akiko comic that we read. But we've wanted to talk about manga for a long time. Oh, yeah. And, and we will uh, one day, hopefully soon, do an expanded, probably a Weird Comics history episode. Long form, yeah. On manga. It's it's a tremendous subject, and in fact, we probably could do several. But uh, we'll see about that. But, but this should get us started, and at least especially how it connects to U.S. Uh, markets and stuff. The word manga comes from the Japanese word combining the two kanji ma- men, which in that case means whimsical or impromptu, and ga, meaning pictures. The word first came into common usage in the late 18th century with the publication of such works such as Santo Kyoden's picture book, Shiji no Yukikai, 1798, and the early 19th century with such works as Akiwa Minwa's Manga, Hyakujo in 1814, and the celebrated Hokusai manga books from 1814 to 1834, containing assorted drawings from the sketchbooks of the famous ukiyo-e artist Hokusai. Now, ukiyo-e art is woodblock engravings and prints made from those woodblocks of like kabuki dancers, sumo wrestlers, geisha girls. You've seen them. These like distorted, very cartoonish, and actually they look like they're from the 20th century, like the in style, but no, they're from the very early 19th century. Um, mm. Yeah, you, you've seen them out there. Look it up. It's U-K-I-Y-O hyphen E. Now, uh, modern manga originates in the occupation and post-occupation years, so uh, 1945 through the early 60s, when Japan was rebuilding its political and economic infrastructure. Uh, Allied occupation censorship policies specifically prohibited art and writing that glorified war and Japanese militarism. Uh, Those policies did not prevent the publication of other kinds of material, including manga. Uh, Japan's new constitution in 1947 also prohibited censorship of all kinds, and so creativity flourished. Uh, in the forefront of this period are two manga series and characters that were that influenced much of the future history of manga. Asamu Tezuka's Mighty Adam, that's a Astro Boy to us in the U.S., mm-hmm. that began in 1951, and Mahiko um, Mashiko Hasegawa's Seize-san, that began in 1946. Yeah, but then... This is, you know, around now, around then, really Astro Boy is a hint that it's going to start sneaking into the U.S. market. And uh, yeah. it happened gradually, uh, really in associated with anime, anime in the 1970s, and then independently beginning in the mid-1980s, just standalone manga uh, books and comics. The first manga translated to English and marketed in the U.S. was Keiji Nakazawa's Barefoot Gen, an autobiographical story of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima issued by Leonard Riefus and Edu Comics in 1970. It was actually brought over by a translator named Frederick Schott and manga enthusiast Jared Cook with funds raised from their Project Gen charity. So talk about a labor of love, Chris. This was not yeah. done for the profit. You know what I mean? They were just wanted to bring it they to the people. They wanted to share the art form, yeah. yeah. Uh, in 1987, we're jumping way ahead, Viz Comics, which is an American subsidiary of the Japanese publisher's 
Shogakukan and Shueisha began publishing in association with Eclipse Comics translations of three manga series. Area 88, My the Psychic Girl, which may be best remembered for the tagline that adorned the cover of the issue, She's Pretty, She's Psychic, She's Japanese, and mm-hmm. The Legend of Kamui. Viz went on to bring English translations of other popular series to the U.S. market in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And then first comic series, series sorry, first comics serialization of The Lone Wolf and Cub started in May 1987. Now, the first manga to really make a splash in the U.S. was the first manga to make a the, the first manga to make a strong impression on American yeah. audience. That was uh, Katsuhiro Otomo's Akira, which was brought to the United States in colorized form in 1988 by Epic Comics, which, as you know, was an was an imprint of Marvel. Mm. Uh, it would win the Harvey Award for Best American Edition of Foreign Material in 1993, and was nominated for the Harvey for Best Graphic Album of Previously Published Work in 2002. Uh, now, throughout the 1990s, manga slowly gained popularity as Viz Media, Dark Horse, and Mix, M-I-X-X, which we now know as Tokyo Pop, released more and more titles for the U.S. market. In uh, 2002, Tokyo Pop introduced its 100% authentic manga line, which uh, for the first time featured unflipped pages, because uh, manga is read from uh, right to left yeah. instead of uh, left to right. Uh, these were also smaller in size than other translated graphic novels, more in line with the Japanese Tankoban manga volumes. Mm-hmm. Now, this allowed them to be retailed at a lower price than, of that than comparable publications by Viz and others because there was less work put into them because they didn't have to flip the art. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and books were also made widely available in main, mainstream bookstores such as Barnes & Noble and My Dear Departed Borders. Mm-hmm. Uh, Borders was still a thing in twenty in two thousand two. Right, a big thing too, and but not anymore. No, unfortunately not. Now, uh, now every bookstore and comic shop worth its salt had a dedicated manga section, and we intend to explore much more of that, like we said earlier, in an upcoming episode or series in Weird Comics History, because. Yeah, I say, and I think Chris is on board too. That though, I I will agree that Akiko, that Mark really was inspired by manga to make Akiko. Akiko holds no resemblance to manga to me. Very, very. Only on the most superficial levels, right? Uh, To me, and and Chris, you're going to help me out here because you're definitely much more knowledgeable about manga. He's read, you've read a lot of it. I've only kind of looked through some of it. It's it's definitely passed through my hands, and I'm (laughs) familiar with the art. But I'm more I more know about anime and uh, that type of stuff than I do know about the uh, Tankoban books and stuff. (laughs) But it comes with its own language. It comes with its own pacing. There are things like a, a lot of establishing shots, a lot of mood shots, and none of that is here. This is standard English no. American, you know, uh, storytelling. It, uh, you know, being black and white doesn't cut it for me because to be a black and white comic, especially in the '90s, is nothing really. New, <laughs> That's not unique. Yeah. Not very unique. Uh, I really think this comic shares more comic book DNA with underground comics, and even like comics like what left to mind immediately was Neil the Horse. But you mm-hmm. could even really pick almost any underground comic that wasn't about drugs and sex. Yeah, which granted wasn't a lot of them, but there were some. <laughs> there were some. <laughs> there were a handful. Uh, I would even say to some extent Zot, which itself looks okay. more like manga, but it isn't. You know what I mean? And it's sure. it's this language. Uh, it's this. It's the sweat drop on the face. It's the uh, 
you know what I mean? The speed lines. Speed yeah. lines. It's things like that. This this is the visual language of Japanese manga. And, you know, we have our own language, comics language in America, and there, there's actually different, slightly different variations all around the world. But uh, Akiko has none of that. It uh, it just strikes me as sort of like a fairly nice fantasy story told in a pretty routine comic fashion. Was that fair to say? Is that a kind thing to say, to Chris? <laughs> no, it's a... Because... We we were saying way early when we first discussed doing this that it it feels more European in style yeah. uh, than than yeah, because you know manga is more than just you know big eyes and giant cheeks but but that's not here either so mm. it's uh it's, yeah, it's not just art style but that is part of it uh, yeah yeah but it doesn't all you know even within manga there's a lot of variation of style. Yeah, and, and we should uh, we should you know say plainly that we haven't read further, so it's fully possible that we could read the uh, the next volume and be like, well, okay, okay, we see it, but uh, you know, because this was a one shot, so well, it may have been. I read I read the next volume. It was oh, more, you did. It was more of the same stuff. It was more, okay. Yeah, I read that that first volume of the uh, whatever that was of the ongoing. The uh, God, what the hell is it called? The Arillo. I'll find it right now. The uh, Alea Raylapore, the uh, Menace of Alea Raylapore was the first mm-hmm. volume of that first three volumes of their collection. I read that just to get more of a flavor of the series, and it okay. was it was more of the same. Uh, gotcha. Very cute, and you know, I would I would be fine to give this to any kid. Uh, I think this could sure. really this could really get a kid's mind going. It makes me think of like dreams I would have, partly of like going to fantastic places, but having. The cover of the robot, or whatever it was, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. That strikes me as such a very kid thing to do, as far as your fantasy. But that's the thing about this. It really struck me that, and and he makes no bones about it, Mark Crilly. This shares more general DNA with fantasy books like Wizard of Oz, and definitely more specifically to stuff like some we're going to talk about very soon, Tantan. Uh, mm-hmm. This really seems like Tantan to me. Like, right? Like, yes. American Tantan. Uh, you mean, I know who Tantan is. We're going to tell you all about that right now because we're going to tell you some other fantasy adventure comics with kid protagonists. Sort of its own subgenre, if it, if it can be said to be one. And we even have a couple of manga in this list, don't we? Mm-hmm. So uh, let's start with uh, little one of my favorites. Even as a little kid myself, I loved Little Nemo, little Nemo in Slumberland. This was a Sunday comic strip created by Windsor McKay, debuting October fifteenth, nineteen o five, in the New York Herald. Nemo means no one in Latin. You can see Captain Nemo of Jules Verne's Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea and other novels for more information. Little Nemo would dream himself into bizarre, fantastical, and often sometimes racist environments. Uh, He picked up several companions that joined him on his travels. The last panel of every comic was Little Nemo waking up in his bed, and there was often an off-panel parent's word balloon yelling, you know, go back to sleep. Don't drink so much, you know, children's beer before bed, you know, whatever it is. Uh, The strip was renamed In the Land of Wonderful Dreams when McKay brought it to William Randolph Hearst's New York American newspaper where it ran from September 3rd, 1911 until July 26th, 1914. Then McKay returned to the Herald in 1924 and revived the strip under the old name until August 3rd, 1924, uh, until December 26th, 1926. So it bounced 
back and forth to two papers uh, three times, but uh, hung in there. And that was not uncommon in those days. We're going to tell that story someday too, Chris. <laughs> yes, we will. And I, I know Little Nemo from the uh, Nintendo game. That's where I first. Oh right. Uh, that's where I first met uh, poor Little Nemo. Okay, now the Adventures of Tantan, which uh, folks will know is spelled T-I-N-T-I-N, mm-hmm. so you know who we're talking about. Uh, and that is a series of 24 comic albums created by Belgian cartoonist Georges Remy, who wrote under the pen name Herge. Or Herge. Uh, How are we saying that? Uh, before you, you know, I don't know if the G is soft or hard. I'm sorry. The E I know is A. <laughs> Herge. So Herge. Herge. I'm going to say Herge. We'll do that. Yeah. Okay. Now, the, the series first appeared in French on January 10th, 1929 in Le Petit Vingdemé, uh, which is the young, the little 20th, a youth supplement to the Belgian newspaper Le Vingtième Cicel, which is the 20th. Cicle. Cicle. And that's the 20th century. The success of the series saw the serialized strips published in Belgium's leading newspaper, Le Sur which is the evening, and spun into the successful Tantan magazine. And I apologize for everything I just put you <laughs> uh, and I had to give you the forward comic, right? What's up? <laughs> and we're, we're, we're not done yet. In uh, 1950, Hergé created Sturgy Studios Hergé, which produced the canonical versions of ten ta- the 10 Tantan albums. Wow. saying that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the last of which came out in 1976. Now, Tantan is a young Belgian reporter and adventurer who becomes involved in dangerous cases in which he takes heroic action to save the day. He's got a white wire fox terrier dog named Snowy. Uh, Tantan's adventures take place in in a realistic 20th century setting, but might include stuff such as abominable snowmen and stuff. Right, yeah. Uh, By uh, 2007, a century after Hergé's birth in 1907, Tantan had been published in more than 70 languages with sales of more than 200 million copies. Right, and there was a movie that came out not long ago film. that tanked. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's huge. And pretty much everywhere but America, it's, it's a huge thing, especially in Europe. Uh, now, this one sort of stretches the, our definition, but that's what we're all about here at the Cosmic Treadmill, stretching the definitions. Uh, Marie Sendak, this is an illustrator of children's books and writer of children's books, some of which are in the sequential art comic style. One of them that really isn't is Where the Wild Things Are, it's the most popular one, published by Harper and Rowe in 1963. In this, a young boy named Max is sent to his room without supper, and the space transformed into a dense jungle populated with monsters. Now, in The Night Kitchen, this one is basically a comic book, published by Harper and Rowe in 1970. In this, a young boy named Mickey travels in his dreams to a surrealistic and food-oriented night kitchen. And this is one of my favorites as a kid, because it was also a coloring book, so I uh, colored as I read. Uh, and then there was one I never read, which is Outside Over There, published by Lothrop Lee and Shepherd Books in 1981. This one isn't really a comic, but it's for color. While Ida plays her horn, her baby sister is stolen by goblins, and Ida must set out to rescue her. Hmm. We have the Marvelous Wizard of Oz. This is kind of a cheat because L. Frank Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz is a novel, and it was popularized into an MGM movie titled Wizard of Oz in 1939. Uh, this comic is largely an adaptation of the movie rather right. than the novel. Um, <laughs> now, it seems that DC was working on an adaptation of the original novel while Marvel was simultaneously working on an adaptation of the film. Uh, Stan Lee and Carmine Infantino, editors-in-chief of their respective companies, 
companies at the time, decided to collaborate on a giant-sized Treasury edition. Uh, despite this, it looks like Marvel did all of the production. Pretty work. much, yeah. Yeah. It was written by Roy Thomas, with art by John Buscema and Tony DiZuniga. Uh, published in 1975, retailing for $2. It's a fairly straightforward retelling of the events from the film, with some stuff from the novel included as well. Uh, from the house ad, it says, For the first time in comics history, Marvel and DC in a joint publishing venture. It would feature a who's who section, as well as a marvelous map of Oz. There's also the wonderful Wizard of Oz, uh, eight-issue limited series, came out in 2009, which directly ad- adapted the novel. It would be followed by The Marvelous Land of Oz in 2010, Ozma of Oz in 2011, Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz in 2012, the Road to Oz from 2012 to 2013, and the Emerald City of Oz from 2013 to 2014. And if that's not enough Oz for you, the 1,080-page Omnibus of Oz was released in 2014. Whoa. Yes, this is the series that was written by Eric Shanoa with art by Scotty Young, and it came out from uh, Marvel Comics. Uh, we didn't get it down, but I know they won all kinds of awards back when oh, they were yeah. coming out. They were, they were quite beloved. I've only seen images, but... That's cool. I loved these novels, actually, as a kid, so mm. I like to see them getting used out there in the world. Here's another one where, again, we're pushing the boundaries of our own definition, but <laughs> Calvin and Hobbes. Now, of course, we might remember that. Was it, or some of us won't remember that it was a daily comic right. strip by American cartoonist Bill Watterson that was syndicated from November 18, 1985 to December 31st, 1995. Follows the humorous antics of Calvin, a precocious and mischievous six-year-old boy, and Hobbes, his sardonic stuffed tiger. When no one's looking, the tiger comes to life and talks to Calvin. Although the stuff that we're talking about actually didn't usually involve Hobbes. Uh, not really an, an adventure strip, Calvin would routinely daydream himself into otherworldly situations, only to be snapped back to reality in the last panel. And uh, as Spaceman Spiff, that's his outer space adventuring character, he could be Stupendous Man. And that's his superhero character modeled basically in a classic Superman design. And then this is a stretch, but still uh, some fantastic elements in it. Of For Tracer Bullet, he's a hard-boiled noir detective, and the art style changes to semi-realistic for these instances. But he often still had to fight tentacle monsters for whatever reason, so I feel like that still counted. Uh, at the height of his popularity, Calvin Hobbes is featured in over 2,400 newspapers worldwide. In 2010, nearly 45 million copies of the Calvin Hobbes books had been sold. Now we're going to go to uh, Japan for Inuyasha. This is also known as Inuyasha, a feudal fairy tale. It's a Japanese manga series written and illustrated by Rumiko Takahashi. Uh, this premiered in Weekly Shonen Sunday on November 13, 1996, and would conclude June 18, 2008. Collected into a very, very thick 56 Tonkobon volumes. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in it, 15-year-old Kagami Higurashi is grabbed by a centipede demon in her backyard and winds up fighting the other bre- other breed demon, other half-breed demons and monsters during Japan's violent Sengoku period, which is uh, 1400s to 1603, the Age of Warring States. Yeah, this was big conflicts, and apparently... Uh, dog demons and centipede yes. demons. So that was, I never, we don't get that in American history. I don't, no. I don't remember the centipede demon uh, getting, going after Paul Revere. but Crossing I guess, the Delaware. Yeah, I don't remember that. <laughs> uh, Hunter, another another manga that was uh, worth talking about, we, uh, we felt was Hunter x Hunter. 
Japanese manga series written and illustrated by Yoshihiro Togashi. It's been serialized in weekly Shonen Jump magazine and journals since March 3rd, 1998, although the manga has frequently gone on extended hiatuses since 2006. As of June 2017, 360 chapters have been collected into 34 volumes. The story here is Young Gun Freezes or Freaks. Lurs the dad he thought was dead is quite alive and joins him as an apprentice to a hunter of fantastical and magical beasts. And we also have Joe the Barbarian. This is an eight-issue limited series published between uh, 2010 and 2011 by DC's Vertigo. Uh, It's written by Grant Morrison with art by Sean Murphy. In it, Joe is a teenage boy with type 1 diabetes. When his blood sugar drops, he enters a state of hypoglycemia He hallucinates and enters a fantasy world populated with his toys and other fantasy characters. Uh, His trials in this fantasy world mirror his real-life struggles in reality. Yeah, and we added that one at the very end. Kind of vacillated because in a way he doesn't go anywhere, right? Yeah. We know he's hallucinating and it's just sort of how he's interpreting what's happening. But then at the same time, I thought... Well, we don't know that Nemo goes anywhere either, or that or you know, Kiko maybe, or, even. <laughs> yeah, Kiko. Maybe she didn't go. Maybe you know the robot is a very convenient excuse for I didn't go to Smoo at all. But anyway, uh, I know Joe the Barbarian's cool. Yeah, check it out. Not bad. Yep. But uh, we're gonna wrap up the show with a little more listener mail. You know, uh, but definitely if you have other uh, kid adventurers in comics, or you want to contest one of our picks. Definitely mm-hmm. write to us at the uh, using the information at the end of the show. But anyway, uh, after I do a quick unprofessional throat clear, <clears throat> excuse me, um, listener mail from Joshua Romano. He writes, "Hi fellas, I loved your crisis coverage and want to share my crisis experience because nobody else would care. We care. We do care. I was 11 when Crisis happened. I remember picking up issue four at CBS. I was a Marvel guy at the time because of what I think was the big DC problem of the early 80s. They had great characters like Batman, Green Lantern, and Superman, but their stories were lousy. Crisis did change this. The relaunches were far more interesting than what was going on before. Without a doubt and whatever their shortcomings, Man of Steel Superman was better than pre-Crisis Superman. JLI was better than Justice League Detroit. And the Golden Age characters had mostly been put out to pasture for a while with the last eight of the JSA series. I gradually, gradually shifted to DC in the late 1980s as Wolverine and the Punisher, both boring to me, came to dominate Marvel. The problem was that things were introduced haphazardly. See Hawkman. Mm. Uh, stronger editorial control could have made better plans for each of the major characters so things were more coherent. Another problem was that Crisis did not simplify DC history, it complicated it. Instead of 15 years of stories that could be referenced, we now had a universe that still had had all this background history from the back issues, but the history had changed. So now the Silver Age Justice League stories still happened, but they had changed, no Wonder Woman, no Superman. The Legion still happened, but with no Superboy. The simplifying therefore created more problems, and the solution was more convoluted than the original history, and required new readers to still know what happened in comics from 25 years earlier. I remember comics readers debating which stories still counted, as in nothing from World's Finest since Batman and Superman hated each other, <laughs> and nothing from Wonder Woman's but Aquaman and Green Lantern counted, and Teen Titans counted, except what about Wonder Girl? 
And why on earth did Space Cabbie survive the crisis? <laughs> was Frank Miller working on Space Cabbie year one? Anyway, fantastic review of Crisis. Looking forward to more great podcasts, Josh. And yeah, we we talked about that a lot, Chris. That uh, oh yeah, and we talk about this a lot on the on the podcast. Of like to us, the issue is you know you make these big changes, but you don't stick the landing. Yeah, you got to stick to your guns. You know, if you're gonna wipe it away, you got to wipe it away. No matter how badly you want to reference Krona. You gotta leave it alone. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That didn't. Ha- we think about the uh, when we were talking about Twilight of the Superheroes, the Alan Moore uh, commandments of yeah. what makes a uh, an event crossover. He goes, he said, uh, does this simplify things or does it make things worse? And uh, you know, the argument can be made both ways with Crisis. Uh, I'm glad it happened because I liked what happened afterwards, but I I can't deny that there were still lingering problems. It, it, we we said at the end, like you know, okay, you want to simplify it, but you've increased the number of active Green Lanterns. You know, yes. you've like only you you know you haven't done away with the Robins issue. You know, like there's a lot of issues that could use this to clean up. You left in. All the weird, like, Fakakta uh, Western heroes that no one will ever know or read about. You know what I mean? Like, here's your yep. chance to get rid of them, but you didn't. Uh, whatever. It's it's very strange. It seemed almost arbitrary. Um, you know, like, I understand why they killed Supergirl, but if they're going to kill Supergirl, there's a lot of other characters I would have let go, too, at the same time. But uh, <laughs> but also, like, like, and we see this with so many events, Chris, uh, right up into the very present, right up to... October 2017, yes. uh, where you know they say they're going to change the status quo. This is going to be this, and they don't stick with it. You know what I mean? No. Um, for better or for worse, believe me. Like, uh, yeah, a lot of stories that I would did not want to hear about, solicited, did not want to read when they came out. But I respect more, and I think you get more longevity out of sticking to your guns. You think you had a good plan? Mm-hmm. Stick to it. You have legacy characters. Stick to them. Don't bring back the old guys, but anyway, we go on and on about that, couldn't <laughs> yes, we? Yes, we could. We could go on forever. Right. Uh, instead, we will thank we'll thank Josh for his letter, and we yeah. will hop to a tweet we got two weeks ago from Ron Randall, the uh, writer and artist of Trekker. Right. He says, "Thanks, guys, and amazingly, you got each voice exactly as I hear them in my head." <laughs> And he's talking about episode 56, right? That was the uh, yes. Trekker Rites of Passage. Uh, yeah, thanks a lot for that, Ron. Uh, we knew it. We, knew, you know, you, when you look at the characters, you know that's exactly how they have to sound, right? Yes, C- we figured. Cindy, Cindy Lauper and Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Randall, you are too kind. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. We had a blast with that one. I gotta yes. say, and the Absolutely. Tommy Wiseau was a. Stroke of genius, Chris had very close to recording, and I was like, "Yeah, you got to do it. That's perfect, perfect." <laughs> and when I saw some of those monologues come, and I exactly, and his name, and know. his name was Zoo already. It was like, "Come on, <laughs> yes. this, this is this is this might be meant to be." <laughs> now we will go to a, another message. We got uh, a DM from Twitter from uh, our friend Joe Crawford, who does the uh, for the non-discerning reader blog on Tumblr, right. This is regarding our Real Comics History, Episode 2, where we discussed 1992. He says, I remember when I heard about the death of Superman. I decided to order the issues from New England Comics. They had a $25, I, though I could be wrong on the exact amount, minimum order for pre-orders. Luckily, they let me add the lead-up issues as well. I remember I ordered one regular cover and two bagged. One to open, of course. Of course. 
of course. Somehow, I spent the 25 bucks, which seemed like a crazy amount at the time. I think I just ordered DC books until I hit the amount. 1993 was my crazy purchasing year, but I'll save that until you cover that year. Great episode. You guys are the best. Oh, you're the best, Joe. You're really Absolutely. Great friend to the show. We love the guy. And, uh, He's awesome. I mean, you know, if you want to follow his blog on Tumblr, I recommend it. If you just want to see a man reading lots of comics, that's the place to see what he's reading. He's putting them away every day. Yeah, uh, he, uh, he puts a lot of uh, a lot of screen caps in his Twitter feed, uh, so you'll you'll see what he's reading. You can read along, and he and he always shares uh, some of the funnier or yeah. uh, sillier uh, panels. It's it's a it's a good time. We do. We have a good time with those panels. Always, I, I always like to make uh, comments, go back and forth with it. So yeah, he's a, he's a great mm-hmm. follow, great guy, great comics fella to mm-hmm. know. And uh, yeah, this is this is a story we hear a lot. The old I bought. I bought three to one to open, four one to open, yeah. ten one to open, right? Uh, and that's why it's not too hard to get a bagged issue, my friends. Not too this hard at all. <laughs> you can you can crack one open and have a uh, armband and a poster fresh as a daisy, whatever you like. So, I still can't do it. Yeah, well, some someday, someday <laughs> they will. Uh, it'll someday it'll turn out that the armband is like the. Uh, most nutritious food stuff left after the they apocalypse yeah. or something. I mean, I'll, then, then they'll spike in value. Then you'll have your uh, day. <laughs> but anyway, uh, thanks everyone for writing in. Thank you, Joe. And uh, if you want to write to us about anything we are talked about in this episode, you want to talk to us about Kid Adventures, Akiko, Manga, or anything else that's on your mind, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic history. On Twitter at Cosmic T Mill, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And you can find our weekly writings at WeirdScienceDCComics.com. Daily writings uh, by Chris at ChrisIsAnInfiniteEarth.com, where he reviews a new DC comic every day of the week, and you are cruising past 600 now. Uh, mm-hmm. You were just banging them out. I don't really have much commentary, to be honest. I didn't get to read them this week. It was. A rough week for me, but that's uh you missed a really, really great issue of Supergirl featuring Prez. Oh, I saw I saw that cover and loved oh, that's it. That's garbage. right. Oh, it, was, it, was, it looked incredible. <laughs> it looked incredible. Well, you know, see that you don't like politics and comics. That's why you didn't like it, probably. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> I, I don't I don't I'm not a fan of the clock fixing party. Yeah, exactly. You were like Kalutas, but I love that. Anyway, uh yeah, so you got to check it out every day. And I, I haven't checked it out this week, but there's going to be a day probably this, probably tomorrow. I'm going to sit and sift through like 12 of them in one, in one batch. So there's, you can do it that way too, folks. <laughs> yes. Just pack a sandwich. That's right. Uh, now for, now for our uh, blog slash half-assed image depository. You can check out weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. We are currently still sitting with all the monitor, uh, pre-crisis monitor mm. appearances, uh, until we find out something more interesting to put there. Mm-hmm. And we will who someday. knows what that'll be. Eventually, <laughs> I'm sure. And uh, we definitely want to thank Bobby again for this suggestion. It was a, it's a book that I've had on my shelf for a very long time, and uh, like so many others, it just sat there. So I'm glad I actually had the incentive to uh, to pull it down and give it a read. Definitely. I love to, you know, this is something I would have, ne- I didn't know it existed. Now, sure. Now I've read it, and now I'm like a, uh, I know much more about it than I ever planned to. So I, I love that. So uh, thank you very much for that, Bobby. Keep them coming, everybody. Also, you can keep sending us suggestions. We are getting through them. It's just not going to be in order or very quickly. 
Yes. But uh, I think that's all we got for him this week, Chris. You got anything else for him? That'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill smooth style. Ah!